Well, we're going to get going here today, guys. Um, welcome again. Here's where we're at in the storyline. It's Revelation 14 today, and let me, uh, let me catch you up to speed, let you know where we're at. Revelation 12 to 14 is another one of these complete worldview units. So we're getting this perspective that God is giving or he's revealing something, right? That's why it's called Revelation. He's showing these early Christians, these seven churches, what's really going on behind the scenes to explain all the persecution and the fear and the temptation and the enticement and the struggle in their faith and trying to stay faithful to Jesus that they're facing. And this whole like kind of cosmic battle, war, weird symbols, weird things happening is all just an encoded way of helping them make sense of their reality and showing them the deeper layer of what's going on. So here's the really depressing beginning to today. But i got to start there because it sets up Revelation 14. You're at war. We're in the middle of a war. This is God's perspective on life in the world as we know it. We are in the middle of a war and there's this dragon who's ferocious and terrifying and horrible and strong and he's enraged and he hates you and he's bent on trying to devour you. The entire perspective of life that John is trying to impress on these Christians and on you is that there is literally a dragon out there trying to eat you and that does not sound pleasant one bit. And if that isn't good news and cheery enough, it gets worse. You're going to die. You're going to suffer. You're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be tortured. You're going to be hanged. You're going to be eviscerated. You're going to be fill in the blank, all right? You're going to be pushed and intimidated and, and, and pressured in every conceivable way, and a lot of you are just flat out going to die. Um, a lot of you are just flat out going to go into captivity. Um, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. This calls for faithfulness to Christ because fundamentally there's nothing else that's going to get you through it and you're going to be tested to the nth degree. That is the setup for Revelation 14. What I love about the Bible and what I love about Revelation is it does not soft pedal and it does not sugarcoat. It does not try to give easing answers to the horrors of reality and the struggles of life and John is just coming flat out and laying that in the lap of these seven churches and by extension into us today. And if you don't start there, Revelation 14 loses its punch. Yeah, Todd. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't hear Todd, basically, you know, Revelation 12 is uh, the beast hates God, or rather the dragon hates God. The dragon cannot destroy the woman who represents the people of God or the, the church universal, so to speak. The beast or, or the dragon cannot destroy the son of God. He cannot dethrone God, so he just goes to make war against the offspring. How can I keep the church from growing? How can I pick them off one by one? How can I get you as individuals, so to speak, to recant, to renounce? The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, um, as Jesus would put it. And this is just a highly picturesque way of explaining that. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. If you're looking at it through warfare, 
Right, right. Did you guys get a chance? It, go ahead, yeah. And you see how beast-like and, and everything else it is, too. Did you guys get a chance to read that letter between Pliny and Trajan? Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about and you're interested, come see me afterwards. But it's basically that letter from a Roman governor to the emperor trying to figure out how to properly deal with the Christian problem. And of course, the Christian problem is Christians are not willing to take the mark of the beast. Christians are not willing, if I can decode that, to burn the incense to Caesar, to proclaim Caesar is Lord, to go through the, 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 the motions, mechanisms, and machines of the Roman government to demand allegiance because Jesus is Lord and their sole allegiance is there. And yeah, I mean, it looks like an administrative matter from Trajan. He doesn't look too beast-like in his answer. Honestly, he's like, we're not looking out to hunt these guys, but we got to deal with the problem if you make it a problem. Um, but to the level that they'll go and how God has a very different perspective on what looks very maybe fair and reasonable in the Roman government's eyes. Yeah, Zach. Yeah. Too, because, yeah. Because yeah, the, the Romans, you know, as one standpoint, it seems like yeah, it's all out war or, or the world. Why why are they treating us this way? But it's, I mean, for the most part, it's spiritual war, and they don't people don't realize really there's a blindness. There's a we're just kind of doing what we think is right. Yeah. If you didn't. And if you didn't hear Zach, I'm just going to repeat these because I'm not sure how well uh, the conversation is traveling. But, but realizing, like as Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that this is a spiritual war and how blind people are to the spiritual aspect of this war. And remember the pictures that Revelation is giving is that Rome is, is, is the beast or the beast is Rome. Um, Rome is not the dragon. Dragon is the spiritual power underneath the flesh and blood of Rome so to speak, and what's generating and giving power to the beast or to Rome is nothing short of, of Satan himself. And getting that perspective, right, and, and again, it sounds either conspiracy theory or it sounds outlandish or it sounds delusional and it can sound absolutely nuts until you can see it from that perspective, from a place of faith. And then it kind of like makes all the sense in the world in, in a way and you realize what's actually going on. But place yourself, you know, I, I always struggle a little bit with persecution texts in the Bible because we really have it so easy. And I'm not ignorant of religious persecution in this country. It exists everywhere, at every time, in every place, and it certainly exists in the U.S. today. But I kind of suspect it does not exist on any level to which it existed in Western Turkey in 92 A.D. Um, and so I try to put myself in their shoes and go just imagine being one of these fledgling little churches out in Ephesus or Laodicea or, or Pergamum or Smyrna or any of those seven hearing John describe to you the inevitability and the reality of the persecution you will face. There is nothing new to this. All John's doing is repeating what he learned from the master's feet. What did Jesus say over and over again? 
you know, what is true of the master or the teacher will be true of the student, right? Um, Unless you pick up your cross daily and come follow me, you have no part with me, Jesus would say. What's true of me is going to be true of you. Revelation is just putting that into living color. And so here you are trying to digest that and come to terms with that and, and, and go, how do I just even stand in the face of that? And I'm just going to argue that the primary weapon or the primary anchor point that Revelation is always giving is simply this, hope. And Revelation 14 is all about hope. Because when you can see beyond just what's right before your face, when you can see beyond the suffering that you're immersed in, when you can see beyond the here and now and the tragedy and the terror, right? And you can see beyond to what God is saying is going to happen in the future. And you can see God's perspective on the whole thing I at least find for myself that's an incredible source of strength and and, and a point that I can draw endurance on in the here and now, knowing that this is not the totality. This is not forever. And that is what Revelation 14 is trying to cast, that hope. After you are like down here in in, in literal agony, fear, and and, and, uh, the horror of the War of the Dragon, God now is showing me something in Revelation 14 to get me through it. So let's read it and see where it takes us. A lot of this, I will tell you, is going to draw an earlier symbolism that he's already laid out and that he's already described. If I fast forward through something and you're like, I I, I don't get that, pause, call me in. I'll try to do a little bit of amplified explanation, but uh, here we go. Let's keep the forest for the sake of the trees, right? 14. But then I looked, and don't downplay that. I'm in horror, right? All I can see is my pain. All I can see is the terror. All I can see is the beast. But then I looked, then I looked. And there before me was the lamb. There in my terror, there in my horror, there in my suffering, there in my persecution, Then I looked, and then I saw the Lamb. And he was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, the legions of God, the, the, the host of God, God's army with him. And we talked about that in the past. Who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a peal of thunder. The sound I heard was that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could sing the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, If you're reading 84 NIV, they kept themselves pure. If you're reading other translations, for they were virgins, maybe some of you had that. So that's also an interesting twist on the 144,000. Who are they? Well, you got to be a male virgin now, too. So um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But uh, anyway, yeah, we could see why it's a very small number, I suppose, right? 
Um, but again, this is military language. And uh, again, we made the point that the 144,000 is, is, is symbolic numerology referring to the way that you would do a military census and how God's army is twice the legion strength of the Roman legions and it can look like Rome is dominating with their legions and their military force but God's army is actually twice the strength and it's using all that cool biblical number and imagery but again there's this whole idea of being the male virgins or those who did not defile themselves you could just kind of do an Old Testament survey and look at what happens before Israel goes into war. Um, the men were called to, uh, quote, keep themselves pure. I mean, and, and they're not talking about like adultery and stuff like that, but you didn't have sexual relations before going in. There would be like this fasting period, this preparatory period. So, so these people who have prepared themselves for war, it's drawing on that imagery. Does that make sense, what it's doing there? And I can give you a bunch of references later if you get into that kind of stuff and you want to look it up. But you know the image, let's keep going. Let's see. Um, they were purchased, uh, or, or rather, they kept themselves pure. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. They are those who are faithful, those who belong to God. There may be an indication that they were first fruits offerings offered up to the Lord, that they had to lay down their lives. So these might be the beheaded saints under the altar. These may be the martyred ones. These may be the ones who have died. It may be referring to God's army as those who were killed by Rome, killed under persecution, but God has mounted a mighty army. I almost get a Lord of the Rings picture. Remember that ghost army, right? Um, and, and if not, it's a great scene where they have to fight the forces of Mordor and, and Aragon goes to kind of get the ghost army and, and like no one can stand against the ghost army because they just boom. I mean, how do you kill a ghost, right? You, you can't because they're, they're already dead. They're ghosts. Um, it works for me, at least the warfare imagery and the power of it and the, uh, even the vengeance and the vindication and, and the retribution, which, which Revelation is not afraid of those kinds of ideas. Uh, might all be tucked in, but we got God's army. I am dying. But then I looked, and there was the lamb, and there was his army with him. And if you are dying in the darkest of night, and then you see your captain, your general, the hero on the hill, and the legions of his forces are with him, that is hope. This is the image it's trying to give. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and angels are messengers. We see the angelic army calling out, giving commands, right? This is what's happening. See it as a warfare kind of thing, and the, the announcements, the trumpet blasts, all that kind of going before you. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, so remember, gospel is actually a Roman term as much as it is a biblical term. Those of you who have been journeying with us here for a while, you might remember I put some inscriptions up on the screen going all the way back to 9 BC, where with the birth of Caesar Augustus, they talked about how it was this new era that was dawning in his gospel or good news would go out. The gospel of the new age would go out. There may be a play that John is using here going, Rome is putting out its gospel, but we have a gospel, and it's a good news proclamation of a 
different king for every tribe and people and nation and language. The greater king is appearing before us. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And you got to get in your mind that judgment is good when you are persecuted. We hear judgment and I think we cower. We don't like judgment day. We're afraid of judgment day. And maybe not without merit. But that's not really the, the, the totality of the biblical perspective. Because if you are in Christ, judgment day is painted as a good thing because now God has come to right the wrongs. God has come to vindicate his people. And if you are one of these churches suffering under the hand of Rome, you want judgment to come. You, if I can spin it this way, want God to start throwing the lightning bolts at your enemies because I got no power to stand against them. Now the hour of the judgment has come. So fear God and give him glory. Worship him, not the beast. We just came out of worshiping beasts, right? The world is worshiping the beast. No, worship him. Everything's in contrast here. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is, decode it, Rome. I know it says Babylon the Great. Babylon is used as the ancient archetypal enemy of Israel, and you're going to see that this gets applied to Rome more and more. Decode it, right? This is, uh, this is guerrilla literature so to speak, not like, uh, like ape, like, like, you know, guerrilla warfare literature. Um, this, this is all kind of, no, 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 fallen is Rome. Fallen is Rome, who is Babylon the Great, who is powerful now, but whose days are numbered. Fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Just kind of a cool, cool image there. A third angel followed and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. You know, Rome is trying to get you to drink their cup. Well, now God's like, yeah, you're going to drink a cup. All right, but it's going to be God's fury. It's saying, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark, etc., he too will drink that cup, which has been prepared or which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So the idea is God's got like this this cup. It's 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 not like a literal cup in heaven. That's weird, but but it, it's almost an image of like God is like pouring in and storing up his anger, his wrath his judgment, and he's going to pull it out full strength. Just a little bit of cultural insight here, but in the ancient world, everyone drank wine. You would probably start drinking wine from the time you were like done nursing, so to speak, but they would always dilute it down. And you can read this in kind of the Roman annals. I mean, it's, it's weird what you can find if you read this stuff, but they would often dilute it at a two to one ratio. So for every part wine, it would be two parts water. And the only time that you would drink wine straight is if you wanted to get drunk, really. And the reason they would do it is because they didn't have water purification. 
And so alcohol is really a gift of God to the ancient world because it's a way to keep you from getting like tapeworms or something like that or whatever you get if you drink bum water. Anyone ever like get Montezuma's Revenge? It's not pleasant. So drink alcohol in Mexico, right? It'll go better for you in the end. Um, I'm only half joking on this. And it's like, you know, but, but you can't like drink straight wine all the time. I mean, like, was everyone like literally drunk in the ancient world all the time? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's the only way you can get through life without indoor plumbing. But they would dilute it down and it would just, you know, it would be try to kill, kill the bugs, kill the bacteria. Um, and so that's how people would normally drink it. But no, God's got the full strength recipe for you. This is going to, you know, overwhelm you. Um, the images that come to mind right now, but when I was a little kid, we, you know, I grew up in Chicago. My mom and dad got divorced. I grew up with my mom and uh, this, this kind little old Italian man, Mr. Mancini, um, had this two flat. And um, he lived downstairs and we lived upstairs. And he was kind of like a surrogate grandpa to me. I never knew my grandparents or my grandpas anyway. But he used to make his own wine and uh, he would actually grow his own grapes out back. And, and I thought as a kid, ooh, good, pick them and eat them. Oh, they're terrible. They were awful and sour. But you'd go down to the laundry room and he had like these oaken casks or something. And like you would smell it. Like, like you would literally get drunk walking down the stairs. And I, I remember from a very early age liking that smell. And I don't know how to read into that, but it was this pungent aroma. And um, my mom would say, like, Mr. Mancini was always trying to push his wine on her. And she said she, he, she would drink, like, you'd be polite or kind. My mom's not a drinker at all. But she would take, like, a sip, and she'd, like, it would just, like, knock her flat. And he would always be trying to push it. And she's like, I've got a three-year-old I have to take care of. I cannot be day-drinking your wine, Mr. Mancini, you know? But I, I remember the pungency the way it would fill the whole room. To me, these images kind of connect because it was a cloud. Maybe I don't know if you've ever had similar experiences, but what is full strength? Like just smelling it, breathing it, it's filling you. This is what God is preparing. I don't know. That's, that's my diversion there. Let's keep going. Um, what verse am I at? 10? All right. All right. So yeah, we got the full strength, right? Um, which, got, which has been pulled for strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Well, that, that's pleasant. Um, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. If you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint from Revelation's point of view. Who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. It's a lot of pungent imagery, and I'll circle it in one moment, Marilyn. It's a lot of pungent imagery. Let me just recast it. You have been told that you are going to suffer 
in the most horrific ways solely for bearing the name of Jesus and remaining faithful to him. And God is calling you to remain faithful to him because from God's point of view, there is no greater thing than to be loyal to him and to put him first in your life. You are going to suffer for it. Some of you are going to die for it. And it's going to be horrible. And it's going to be cruel and vindictive and capricious and, 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 and arbitrary even. And they're going to mock you and they're going to gloat you. And I'm not making this up. I'm just spinning the revelation language out. They're going to pour salt in the wound afterwards. They're going to uh, uh, falsely accuse you and misalign you. And, and how do you hold up under that when it is an empire and you are an individual, right? You look and you see the lamb and you see that his angelic forces are with him. And for those who remain faithful, God's fury is coming. God has noticed. God has seen. God is patient, but he is not turning a blind eye on the evil you're enduring or the injustice you're facing or the suffering that you're going through. God, in fact, is going to do something about it. And when he pours out a cup of fury, they are going to be tormented with sulfur forever. They are going to get what's coming to them. It is going to be wreaked and poured back upon them. And I don't need to explain this to those of you who have faced that kind of thing when you get that riled up, just kind of God, God, would you avenge? God, would you do something? God's army's coming, and it's going to be poured out, and the angels are proclaiming it now, so stay faithful. That's the hope, if I can call it that, that this passage is giving you, and how it fits, you got to wrestle with, and we can wrestle through together. But Marilyn, did you want me to circle back in, or did we kind of... Because you're, yeah, why does it call for the impatient endurance of the saints? Because God's fury and wrath, from one perspective, is being poured out now, like we saw in the seals, right? Like we saw in the trumpets, to a degree. From another perspective, the full strength of God's fury has not been poured out yet. We haven't hit judgment day. So it's going to call for patient endurance until that comes. When is that going to come? It's anyone's guess, right? Hang in there patient endurance, waiting for what you see to be realized. So you're getting a picture of it gathering. He's showing you. He's giving you a revelation. Look, God's preparing, and it's going to come, but it might not come this instant. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Speaking in the present tense. So is that, to me, is that actually a message of hope where there, it's almost like a final chance to... Yes. He's not, he's not speaking in the past. Those people who messed up before, they were in trouble. It's, to me, it seemed like he was saying, okay, those of you who keep going the way you're going, even now, you're in trouble. It's not those who have messed up in the past and maybe changed their ways. It's if you, you, if you insist on keep going like this, 
Right, it, it is a warning. And this is the biblical pattern from the beginning of the prophets. The prophets come and preach judgment. But the point of their preaching judgment is to try to call you to repentance, and it's a warning. And so you're, I'm going to give you a sneak peek of what's to come. This is not just spinning theology on it. Revelation is actually going to do just this. So the image that we have being set up is God's, God's cup or bucket of wrath is filling. And I get the image of those water parks where you have like the bullseye on the ground and they have that like 8,000 gallon bucket and I don't really know how much they hold, but you know what I mean, right? And they got that, that giant bucket and there's like that hose that's filling it up and all like the little kids kind of try to time it and they gather around and like, when's the bucket gonna get full mass and tip over? You know what, I'm, you've seen these things? Have you ever like done one of these things? So you're waiting and it calls for patient endurance, right? Because imagine there's like kids on the bullseye who are like beating you up and like intimidating you and depancing you and humiliating you and doing everything. I mean, and you're waiting for the bucket to just wipe them out. This is the image that's kind of <laughs> being poured out. And what it's going to do in Revelation 15 and 16 is you're going to actually see the cup of God's fury poured out. So we had seven seals. We had seven trumpets. Now we're going to have the seven bowls or seven kind of pouring outs, so to speak. But within it, you're going to see all of these agonies, all of these, these horrors, all of these judgments of God worked in it. But woven through is this idea that people refuse to repent, including Rome, right? They refuse to repent, which implicitly has this idea that God is trying to bring them into repentance. C.S. Lewis has a great way, I think, of, of, of capturing this, where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts out to us in our pain. That it often takes pain and suffering for us to give a crap about God. Um, we, we take God for granted. We, we hold him at bay and we treat him as a theoretical exercise until we are in need. And need often comes from a place of pain or desperation or suffering. And that God will use that to get our attention. Not that God is like needling you, going, I'm going to make you suffer until you like me. But God is going to allow suffering to, oh man, God. You know, when, when, when are your prayers the most fervent? Right? It's when you're crying out from a place of pain, I bet, or a place of worry, or a place of fear, or a place of, of suffering. And yeah, God will use his very fury to even try to shake people out of apathy and to shake them into a different perspective and way of viewing the world. Yeah, yeah. And it's also double-laced with the gospel. That angel's proclaiming the gospel's going to go out. You know, at one level the gospel is really nothing more than the royal proclamation that a new king is on the block and here's the good that's going to come from it. But because this king is a lamb, so to speak, there's this offer of forgiveness and this offer of God's grace to all people, even the traitors and even his worst enemies. So yeah, you could see a double laced in that angel's word as well. So that's the image, all right? Let's, uh, let's round it out. There's a few verses left. They put a section break here if you're using a modern translation. But I don't know. Let's see where it takes us. And uh, land the plane on chapter 14. So, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Son of man is, is, is like just a description for a human. We have beasts. 
that seemed to be ravaging the earth, but now we see one who looks human, right? A son of man. And uh, he had a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called out in a loud voice to him who was seated on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. And I'll just simply say, this is alluding to Daniel chapter 7, where you see when the people of God then were suffering under the beasts of the earth, looked and they saw one who was like a son of man who came from God's throne and brought order back to the chaos and who brought God's kingdom back um, to rule out of all the other kingdoms of the earth. So it's direct allusions to Daniel 7 and Jesus plays with his imagery in Matthew 14, or Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and other places too. He, John's just assuming you know the Bible at this point. And uh, look this stuff up and read it if you kind of dig it, but take my word for it otherwise. So we see this harvest is happening, right? Swing the sickle, harvest the earth. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grape from the, uh, from the earth's vine, because the, the grapes are ripe. It's time, in other, in other words. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising to a height as high as a horse's bridle. So it's at like, I don't know, three, four feet high, five feet high, for a distance of about 300 miles, 1,600 stadia, give or take. So that, 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 that's, that's like, you know, you think the shining is like a, a sea of blood rushing at you. I ain't got nothing on this. Some of you kind of mentioned earlier, you know, the temple. Was that just like a big bloody affair? Yeah, it was. And we see the temple imagery here, but the blood is flowing like you're drowning. And it's just, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's apocalyptic. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, you got it. But what you're getting a picture of is Judgment Day again. Remember, the world ends five times. In the book of Revelation, it keeps giving new pictures, new perspectives, taking us through the same period of time between Christ's first and second coming, and we culminated here at the end of the world one more time, and 15 is going to set us up to kind of go through the cycle again. 12 to 14, here's what life is like in the world as we know it. Yeah, Dean. So what John likes to do is just keep pushing the metaphor right? He keeps compounding image upon image upon image or keep pushing that metaphor to the nth degree. So, so just push the metaphor and I think it'll make sense. We have talked about a cup already and the cup ain't filled with water. The cup is filled with wine and we've seen that the wine is full strength. So it makes sense to kind of keep pushing those, those wine metaphors. Grapes, right? The earth is arguably bearing fruit. And the fruit that the earth is bearing, to use Jesus' words, would be both like wheat and weeds, or bad grapes and good grapes, or, or, or something like that. You get this harvest imagery Jesus uses all the time in the Gospels to talk about how 
things and forces and people are growing. And God is going to come and there's going to be a great harvest where he'll use wheat and chaff. The wheat are gathered into the barns, the chaff are burned. It's the same thing but using wine and grapes now. And so the angels, instead of gathering wheat, are harvesting grapes. And what's that? Some, I mean, you know, here, I, I think you're, you're getting the images. John is using it at least specifically at the end here um, to refer to those who have received the beast's mark, to those who have done evil, to those who have done all that, because they're getting trampled, right? Um, so at least it seems to go that way at the end with the image, it, arguably. Yeah, John? There seem to be two sickles here. Yeah. One by the land. Sure, sure. And then the other is the angel who's saying, hey, the sick, you, know, the, you harvest the rest of them, and like the wheat and the chaff, where it's so something good coming out of the harvesting and something destructive uh, in that sense. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, and, and, and again, not knowing how they, they actually did it back then, I can't speak into it, but this is an image that might help me, John, on it, because there seems to be two sickles, right? Like the lamb is gathering his crop, and then the other angel is going and clearing out. And, you know, I, I live up north of here, um, so I'm not in, like, subdivision world. I'm out, like, in cornfield world. And you, you learn a lot about farming just by, like, driving through the fields, you, you know, down 173. And fall harvest is two-stage. Um, the combines come through in September, October, or maybe November, and they cut down all the corn. And then you've got stalks that are left generally about like two feet off the ground. And what they tend to do before winter comes is come through again just to churn it all up and burn it into the earth. So same kind of two-stage harvest, right? You get the good crop. Christ is getting his crop, and then you're milling up the rest. But here it's getting trampled, just a different image, but I think it's the same idea. Going on, yeah, yeah, I think so. So, yeah, um, I don't know, and yeah, please. Uh, you know, we have a hard time understanding this chapter. You know, did they back then? Yeah, it's always the million dollar question. We have a hard time understanding this chapter. Did they back then? I mean, fundamentally, who knows? Because if, without being able to go back and ask them, you're like, how do you know? But I think it's fair to say they got it a lot more than we did for a few reasons. One, because it's actually written to them. And it's not written to us. And it's written to a people who are sharing a certain like cultural perspective that we are trying to learn as we go and import. Um, you know, an example is, so I just finished the book Ready Player One. Anyone ever read it or ever see the movie? takes place in like 2045, but it's about like basically the Jeff Bezos of the day who makes this thing that takes over the world and people live in his virtual reality and he loved 80s pop reference. And everything in the book is about the 80s. It's all about 80s arcana. And it's funny because like my daughter Riley read it first, Riley's 16, and she didn't get half the references I did because I grew up in the 80s and even though we've done right by our children and instilled the 80s in them from a very early age, 
if you don't live it, you just don't get it instinctually. And that's what? I mean, we're just talking 40 years removed. We're 2,000 years removed. So you live it, you get it, right? And of course, they, they, they arguably knew the Bible well. Um, how many of us know Daniel 7 like that? Not, not many of us. Arguably, they did. It was a very defining part of the Bible for them. So, yeah, it's some guesswork. But I think you can argue that they did. How hard was it to teach or to spread the word on this? Because if the churches get it, it's in code, but how many other people would get code? I'm not sure the code is for people outside the church, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure that the way that they spread, like I can't find any evidence that the evangelistic efforts of first and second century Christians were using the book of Revelation. This is written to the believers to give them hope and perspective. Um, and to encourage them to evangelize, but not by quoting per se this. And you know, an evangelism was always meant to be internalizing something and then communicating it in a relevant and understandable way to other people. And so, you know, you could do it very easily like this. You can go, man, you, you, you think that this, this Roman Empire thing is your savior, but it's not. Look how it's terrorizing people. Look how it's killing people. Look how it's tormenting people. It's a monster. Anyone's gonna get that, right? in any day and age. Yeah, um, we gotta land the plane here in a sec, but go ahead and then we'll... I just wanted to build on her comment. It's just what you just said. It's funny that it's not necessarily an evangelistic tool, but yet in our day and age, it's used for that. To basically, I, I've heard it used personally to basically scare people into believing in God. Sure, you know, sure. That purpose, yeah. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, thanks for coming. Next week is Revelation 15. It's a whole new cycle that it starts. God bless, guys.